little bit of trivia for you. Did you know uh, that there are over at least 96 images of the church in the New Testament? And these images come to us with things like salt and light. They come to us in, with, with personal descriptions of a bride and a body, of a house, of living stones, and on and on and on it goes. And these images and these metaphors of the church are not uh, one-dimensional pictures. Rather, they, they're creating this dynamic living picture uh, images capturing how it is that uh, people from every uh, nation, from all the tribes, to use that original language, from, from all peoples and all languages, a great diversity of people, these people who would normally find themselves uh, finding ways to scatter, finding ways to be divided, finding ways uh, to use their differences to, to be at war with each other. It's using these images to describe how they are united in a spiritual reality of faith in Jesus. A faith which causes us, which, which, which motivates us, uh, compels us, so the words that Paul uses in our passage today urges us uh, to walk in a way of life worthy of the grace in which they're given, of the grace in which they're established. We read to walk humbly, gently, patiently, Nurturing and maintaining a life together out of an, out of an, not an undefined love, but out of an encountered love. Out of a peace that has come into our lives that God's Spirit has established in us. 96 images seeking to paint a picture of the DNA of the church that emerges out of faith in Jesus. And last week and over the next few weeks leading up to our Christmas uh, series, we're kind of refreshing, looking back at some of the, the values of our church. And this week we're looking at the value that we have of community in Christ. What is it that unifies us? What is it that, 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 that brings all of these people, a few of them scattered here today, who would normally be natural born enemies, Collingwood and Carlton supporters and the like? What, what brings them all together? What brings to life these images of unity of the church? Often when people speak about the Christian life, they will talk about it as a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a true description. However, it's not a complete description. The phrase personal relationship with Jesus, if we just left it there, could give you the idea that it's a private thing. That it's just between you and God. While faith is indeed very personal, it is never intended to be private. It's never intended to be a private thing. God's design for believers is to be deeply connected in community with other followers of Christ, with other people of the same faith, the same experiences of, of grace and this bond of peace that Paul's talking about. While we are individually saved, we are saved into a community. And a church is often described by Paul as a body. He does it in 1 Corinthians 12. And, and in this book this, that we're in today in Ephesians, it happens in chapter 1, it happens in chapter 2, it happens in the verse that Robin read to us today in 4, 4, and again in chapter 5. One of those images painted to present the nature of the church, different members coming together to form a united whole, a body. Paul also states that this body has a head. And that head is Jesus. We read about it at the beginning of Ephesians in Ephesians 1.22. It's a way of saying that Jesus is, is the controlling governance, if you like, the ruling king, uh, its Lord. 
The constant and universal picture that we get from the New Testament is that God is calling and saving people uh, in Christ to be part of a new creation, the church, under the Lordship of Christ, in relationship with Jesus. This is a community that's formed and sustained uh, by faith in Jesus. This community whose uh, common experience of Christ results in something that the New Testament calls fellowship. This fellowship exists between those who are in Christ and now find themselves united in deep relationships with each other and with God. It's a spiritual relational reality that's brought into effect by the Holy Spirit and it distinguishes the Christian community. It sets apart the Christian community from all other communities, or at least it should. Without the presence and the work of Jesus, without the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us for salvation and transformation, we cannot identify, we can't function as a church community. The kind of community a church is to be, a kind of community that a church must have, it must have the fingerprints of divine DNA over it. This idea of community actually begins with God. It's not a human phenomenon or or a concept. It's not a result of so-called evolutionary process. It's, it's, It's fundamental to humanity because we are actually created in the image of a God who exists in community. The constant picture that we get of God from the Bible is that he is, he is a trinity, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of that divine community flows his design for humans to be involved in relationships made in God's image and after his likeness we read about in the first chapter of Genesis there. And as we read these first chapters of Genesis, what we see is this beautiful picture of how we are created for community and how that community is sustained by God and enables us to enjoy each other in this bond of peace, what the Bible calls shalom. God makes an observation at the start there. He says it's not good for man to be alone. We read about that in Genesis 1.18. Here's something that we all know. Here's something that we all feel. It's universal to our experience. It's not a good thing to be alone. It's not a good thing to be isolated. We fail to flourish. We fail to thrive when we feel alone. It's probably the one thing, if we've learned anything out of two years or so of being in a pandemic about what it is to be human, it is that we need community. That's why it's so important that we're able to get back in and get back together again. It's not because over millions of years of evolving, the only humans to survive were those whose biological chemistry, whose DNA had that kind of DNA signature that encouraged us to be in packs and and be in gatherings. No, it's far more intentional. It's far more meaningful than that. It's, It's created DNA based on an existing design found in the triune God. Right out of the gate, God created us to be relational to experience deep and meaningful relationships with him and with each other. These relationships were intended, designed, created to say something about the character of God who were, they were to express, they were to image, they were to bear witness to the character of God who we're in relationship with. These relationships then were to be shaped by that and bring us deep satisfaction, deep joy as we, as we related to each other out of that base. What a... What a gift. 
the first picture that we are given of a relational community is in the marriage of a husband and wife in relationship with God. Out of this were all other relationships to be influenced. Out of a marriage, influences a family, influences a community, a town, a city, a country, and on it goes. Here we see the ultimate in diversity, male and female, in the bond of peace. Like you don't get more diverse coming together. They're different biologically, physiologically, emotionally, different in their capacity to park cars, you name it. But listen to how it's described in Genesis. In Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. It's a community that knew no shame. It was open. It was honest. It was fully trusting, knowing that all the parties were for the good and the well-being of the others. There was no need to cover ourselves, to hide ourselves intellectually, uh, emotionally, you know, our attitudes, let alone our physical makeup, because there's no, there's no insecurity here. There's no fear. You park a car however you want. No one's judging you. Just peace. Equality, mutual loving service that, that as it just lived out, it poured out, it was an expression of worship in itself as it spoke to the character of God who, who brought this all together. This is how God designed community to operate in self-giving and worship. And we miss it and we long for it. We long for no shame. We long to be able to be authentic with each other. We long to be able to share our hearts without the worry that what we share, that what we disclose could be weaponized or used against us. We long for a bond of peace and something that unites diversity without losing our own individual identities and asking us to become some androgynous, homogenous whole. But most of all, our songs long for relationship with God and long for something that can bear the weight of worship that's involved in that. As Augustine said, You have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. It's that rest. It's that peace that unifies people who have found faith in Christ. Tragically, we read in Genesis 3, the record of how our sinful rebellion against God's word and our trust in him as good fractured community with God, fractured community with each other. Out of the multiple disarray and dis- disruption to creation that sin caused, community with God and community with each other were the first visible things to suffer. Rather than longing for God and confidently entering into his presence, we, we see Adam and Eve, and, and ever since, people fear and hide. Rather than mutual serving and a bond of peace, there is mutual distrust and estrangement between a husband and a wife. And this is graphically depicted with the words in Genesis 3.17. They knew they were naked. Now they see each other through the eyes of suspicion and mistrust, guardedness and selfishness. Sin has corrupted relationships. Now we have shame and distrust between Adam and Eve, between them and God. The resulting judgment of God towards sin is, is, continues as he casts Adam and Eve out of his presence, out of the intimate presence of God. 
where eternal life is found and encountered in experience, where that shalom, that peace is encountered. We read in Genesis 3 that he drove them out to the east rather than a picture of home and community. Camped around the presence of God, we have a picture of exile and scattering. This is the corrupted relational rhythm now. Sin pushes us apart. It causes division, segregations and separations. From Genesis 4, we read a story of humanity that is in constant relational upheaval with God and with each other. And in the space of possibly a thousand years, it's so bad that God is grieved at what we've become. So dysfunctional, so self-destructive, so abusive toward each other. We can't imagine the kind of picture that's described here. Abusive destruction toward each other, towards God, that God in in grace and mercy, executes judgment on a completely degenerate society. And humanity is literally washed away in a great flood. All but one family, Noah's family, with whom God will begin a new way to establish relationships, a new way in which his character is revealed, a new way in which uh, a, a different story can be spoken towards those who see it. It's called covenant. Covenant is the pursuit of rebuilding community. God's response to community discord is covenant. A covenant at a basic level is a relational agreement between two parties. And it can happen between a husband and a wife. We call that marriage. It can happen for people in business. It can happen between countries who form treaties. When the Bible speaks of God's covenant with his people, it is explaining how our relationship with God is maintained by his provision and exists by his grace. There's not enough scope in this morning to to go into detail on the topic of covenant, but it'll suffice to say that covenant is the means through which God enters into relationships with his people through a solemn commitment, guaranteeing his character, guaranteeing his promises and outlining our response and our obligations. Culturally in the day, covenants were often entered into through the sacrifice of animals, And blood bound the agreement. This was how God established his covenant with his people. The Hebrew idiom for establishing a covenant was to cut a covenant. Animals were sacrificed, blood was spilled. These days we have a phrase now that's probably emerged out of that to cut a deal. But I doubt anybody actually sacrificed any animals to do that. Probably sacrificed some uh, convictions maybe, but that would be the extent of it. At the heart of covenant is the promise of God that I will be your God and you will be my people. Over 40 times we read different variations of of this throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is the initiator. God is the pursuer who seeks relationship, who seeks to build community based in his design that we might enjoy his blessings and the reestablishing of deep relationships rather than continue in our flight, in in our exile in our scattering, in our estrangement. God commands his people to keep covenant through love and through obedience. The law and the entire worship systems of Israel are tied up in covenant. Spiritual and material blessings, curse and curses come according to the the faithfulness or the unfaithfulness of God's people. And so what we find is two certainties emerge out of this great history of covenants. 
And the first one is God's character. God's covenant with us, with, with his people, became known as his hesed. The hesed of God. And, and it, it's a word that says God's loving kindness. He's the consistency of God, the ever faithfulness of God, the relentlessness, the constant pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love of God. That's what this word hesed tries to capture. It's often translated as love or loving kindness, mercy, steadfast love, loyal love, devotion commitment reliability as it tries to capture the way god commits to staying in relationship with us and build communities that reflect his character and the second thing that emerges from the history of covenant is that humanity is incapable of being relationally faithful to god we are often described by the prophets as adulterous even with god's gracious provisions of covenant we are prone to relational dysfunctionality to destruction and abuse it's what sin does there are five major covenant moments in the bible as god came back to the table in faithfulness and humanity kept pushing away from the table in unfaithfulness the first one of these covenants is the one between god and Noah. we find that in genesis 6 and 9 and then we find one between god and abraham in genesis 12 15 17 and then we find one between god and moses in Exodus 3 and 19 and 24. And then we find another one between God and David as the promises keep increasing uh, in 2 Samuel 7 and again in Psalm 89. Now, for those of you who are observant and those of you who are still tracking with me and you haven't kind of scooted off to the kitchen to make a cuppa or you're kind of like, man, he's going on, you will have noticed that there's only four covenants mentioned. The final covenant is a new covenant of Jesus and the church. And we read about that in Matthew 16 uh, and 26. In Luke 20, the church is the new community. We read about the establishment of this covenant in these verses. It's the new community that arises out of the gospel about Jesus that he has died for and redeemed relational rebels freed them from sin and its bonds, reprioritized, uh, recreated the DNA from, from relational autonomy and enmity against God and, and selfishness and manipulation toward each other to that of peace, to that of selfless service, which we looked at last week, to that of love, encountered love, and in places like 2 Corinthians and Hebrews and Revelations, we read how this new covenant God will put the law not in stones, but will put the law into our hearts, will, 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 will dwell in us. He shall be our God and we shall be his people. This spiritual reality. In Jesus Christ, God is bringing people back into community, not based in our efforts to maintain a law or worship systems, not based in our attempts at behavior uh, reform or morality, not based in self-loathing or penance, but based exclusively and solely in Jesus' sacrificial work on a cross and the regenerative, transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives based on a relationship established in grace and in peace and in love as God initiates and moves towards us. Through the cross, Jesus has cut, 
has spilled his blood, a new covenant, and it's forged in unconditional grace, and it results in faith for those who gather around it, for those who, who trust in it. Grace in which we come into a relationship with God and each other through Jesus, uh, perfect through Jesus' perfect standing and sin-atoning death. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, Jesus has mediated a new and a better covenant with God. It has always been the plan of God to rescue and redeem a community of people through Jesus. As John Stott writes in his commentary, the church that forms out of this covenant mediation is not an afterthought or an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is a new community of God purposed in eternity past. In Ephesians 2, at the, earlier on in, in our book, in, before the reading that Robin gave, Paul explains that this new community comes about via the kindness of God towards us in Jesus. Not our doing, but God's grace. Through Jesus, we receive a gift of God's workmanship, where his poetry, he says elsewhere, his ongoing activity in our lives. That is to say that God has made humanity in the first place to be in deep relationship with him, the same God who did that now in Jesus is creating a, a, a new act of divine creation, a new act of creating community for those who are in Christ. It's Paul's way of describing a Christian as somebody who's, who is in a faith union with Jesus. They are people whose lives were previously ruined and marred by sin that caused all manner of relational and spiritual death. Now they are alive in Christ and walk in relationships of good works, Paul says in Ephesians. And Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are this new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. New DNA of the character of God in our lives to be lived out and expressed in certain ways one that one that experiences peace peace in christ our restless hearts now taste again what it is to have fellowship with god the hostility and relational discord has been broken down between us and god as jesus reconciles us to god and then out of that experience we then we then break down the barriers toward each other what we've encountered we then live out this is a new humanity in which Jesus unites those who live on different sides of the tracks, who once treated each other as enemies. He makes them fellow citizens, members of the same community. This is a people gathered, no longer scattered and repelled by petty differences. This is a people, a community based in a uniting, united experience of grace as they encounter Jesus. Paul, in another letter to the Galatians, in chapter 3, says there in, in verse 26 and on, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. As many, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring's heirs, according to the promise, according to all these covenants that's led up to this new one. Paul gives a picture of what, spirit, of what spiritual um, unity looks like. It takes the normative identity markers that we can use to create division, males, females, Jews, pagans. There's no loss of our actual identities. It's not that you stop becoming a male or a Jew or, or whatever. 
There's just the loss of motivation to use these things to push us apart. In our passage today that Robin read to us in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, Paul begins to talk about the obligations of those. As we said, there's always promises and then, and then there's certain obligations in a covenant, certain responses to the, to the graciousness, to those who have been unified together in Jesus. In the first half of Ephesians, Paul does all the work to show us what God has done on our behalf, to give proof to who Jesus is and what he's done, to create a community that once again is united in the character of God and encountered in Jesus. And we've done a fair bit of work of that this morning. But now here in chapter 4, Paul now talks about the imperatives of participating in this new community. This is not a description of how we earn our standing in the community, but rather how the new DNA of grace and peace uh, that naturally, unavoidably uh, begin to, to bear witness to the unity of love for God and for each other that exists. In verses 1 to 3, we are given a set of characteristics that Paul says we must walk in, must to maintain the unity of the Spirit and His bond of peace, the DNA, the active ingredients of a church community. These things don't just happen magically. They require intentional, purposeful effort on our behalf, our obligations, our response. The ancient metaphor for one's life, which is a walk, is used here. Step by step, day after day, we are to walk our, 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 our life, our, our display of life. And we are to walk in humility, Paul says. Humility is thinking less of yourself and more of others. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it in, mere, in the book Mere Christianity, it's not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not self-loving, it is selfless serving. It is it's, it's lovingly based in the unshakable knowledge that you are loved. Secondly, we are to walk in gentleness, Paul says. Here is a word that actually has a spirit of submissiveness in it. Gentleness is the spirit of one who is absorbed in seeking some worthy goal for the common good. The good works that he's talked about in Ephesians 2. Gentleness is not weakness. Because gentleness is, is a conviction of heart that is not moved uh, because people might slight you, because people might insult you, because people might injure you. They might bring personal attacks on you. Gentleness is actually concern uh, toward each other that is firmly and lived out. Paul's going to explain it more in chapters 5, what this kind of intentional, loving submissiveness does when it brings things like marriages together and families together. Thirdly, we are to walk in patience. We are to be slow to get angry, slow to avenge wrong or, or retaliate when we feel offended or hurt. Somebody said something on Facebook that we didn't quite like. This is a word used of God's patience towards us. The same word, and find it in Romans 2, 9, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3. It's a word that talks about God's patience to us, slow to anger towards us, his character now being uh, born out in us as we walk in this attribute. We are to uh, walk bearing with one another in love. This too is the DNA of divine attributes, of the character of God. 
It is to lovingly work with the weak, not ceasing uh, in, in loving each other or loving our neighbours because we, we see some kind of fault in them or, or, or there's something that they've done that offends us or displeases us. We continue to move towards in love. John Stott says it's, it's a loving tolerance and without it, no community can actually live in peace. All of this we are to do. We are to be eager to do lovingly eager to participate in it is to be the very dna of who we are as god's people and in verses four to seven give us a picture of the the theological realities behind this unity for those of us that are into significance of numbers there are seven uh numbers seven ones used here and the number seven is often depicted for completeness paul is is saying here's a complete picture that underpins our our unity as being based in God's own unity. In verses 4 to 7, we find all members of the Godhead being mentioned. A God of community, creating a community in his image to bear witness to the world of what life looks like with him. Christians are not merely nice people. They are new people. They have been remade by the, by the presence of the very life of a triune God that's captured here in Paul's seven one. Over the next few months, maybe into the next year, we are going to have plenty of things, plenty of opportunities to deny or to disrupt the unity that Jesus brought with his life. We're going to have plenty of opportunity to deny the realities of Jesus' unity. But Paul has given us some basic characteristics here, some basic DNA blocks to help us keep on working on that unity. And the question as we, as we come back together, the question as we, as we begin to navigate our way through these next few months is, what kind of a story is Freeway going to tell? What kind of a community of people are we going to be? Are we going to be a community of people that bear the character of God? Or are we going to continue to drag in the character that, that sin produces dysfunctionality discord this is a great church and and we see the love that we have for each other as we come back together we we will have plenty of opportunity to to live into that and to move into that and we're looking forward to it let's pray loving god we want to thank you for the opportunity uh to look into our values here to look at to look at what shapes us as people to what shapes us as a church And would that be your presence in us? Would that be your character in us? Would we be united in our our gathering, in our people, by a shared experience of you? And as we do that, we live toward each other out of that. We pray more and more as we encounter you that others would encounter you in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.